That's where the magic comes from. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to Irenicast. I'm your host, Jeff, and with me, as always, is my brother-in-law, Alan, and his cousin, Mona. We are post-evangelical ministers and theological thinkers grappling with our place in the progressive Christian world. Thank you for joining us for another conversation on faith and culture. So this week, we are doing things a little differently in the sense that our conversation is not going to be based necessarily on a theme or a theological concept or something like that. We're actually going to be doing, I don't know if review is the right word, but we are going to be doing a movie conversation about the movie Inside Out. So from the very beginning, spoil alert, if you have not seen Inside Out, go watch it because we are going to give away everything. Like you will, this whole movie will be spoiled for you if you listen to this first. So go listen or go watch, come back. So before we get the conversation started, here's a little bit, a little piece of what the movie is all about. Here we go. All right, open. Hmm, this looks new. Think it's safe? What is it? Uh, okay, caution. There is a dangerous smell, people. Hold on, what is that? This is disgust. She basically keeps Riley from being poisoned, physically and socially. That is not brightly colored or shaped like a dinosaur. Hold on, guys. It's broccoli! <laughs> yeah! Well, I just saved our lives. Ooh. Yeah, you're welcome. Riley, if you don't eat your dinner, you're not going to get any dessert. Wait, did he just say we couldn't have dessert? That's anger. He cares very deeply about things being fair. So that's how you want to play it, old man? No dessert? Oh, sure. We'll eat our dinner right after you eat this. Ah! Right, right. Here comes an airplane. Ah! Oh. Airplane. We got an airplane, everybody. So Inside Out is a Pixar animated movie that came out this last summer, and it's basically about a little girl transitioning from childhood to adolescence and that kind of middle tweener spot. And the whole movie is about what's going on in her head. And inside of her head, each emotion is represented by a separate character. And it's really... Uh, I thought it was really amazing look at the complexity of the transition from childhood to adolescence, which almost never gets addressed in film, let alone anywhere else in culture. And the way it's depicted in this movie is she has these areas inside of her brain where her emotions live and they visit different lands. And uh, <laughs> you already gave a spoiler alert, so I might as well say some of these lands get destroyed or rebuilt or retooled. And it was definitely a very tangible way to look at losing some things of childhood, gaining some things of becoming an adult. And I don't know about you guys, but I, I cried a little bit. There were some tears toward the end <laughs> for me. I totally cried. Oh, my gosh. I've watched it three times initially just because I wanted to see it. And then when we talked about doing this as a possible episode. I watched it again and took some notes and just kind of looked at it from there. And then I watched it again this morning just to get a fresh, you know, perspective on the movie. And I, the last third of the movie, every time I watched it, I cried, even though I didn't think I did. I hate love this movie for making me cry. <laughs> so you're out of tears. Your emotion, sadness on the inside has been controlling you all morning. Well, and it's so much more like for me, obviously, as, as a father, it's the more relatable it, like before it wouldn't have been relatable to me. It would have been like, Oh, that's nice. And it, the whole idea of kids would have been an imagined thing, but ah, it was so, it's so good. So, so that's another element of this movie 
It's not just this girl's complex emotions. It's the emotions in other people in her life that are interacting. So with her dad and her mom, they all have emotions that are kind of inside of their heads that are represented by different characters interacting with each other. Well, well, just to kind of like lay the foundation for this movie, it was actually inspired partly by a World War II Disney propaganda cartoon. Really? Back in like 1943 called Emotion and Reason. And it's this little like cartoon short that basically really oversimplifies how our mind works. That basically we're in a constant fight between emotion and reason and reason is right and emotion leads us down a destructive path. This is kind of a, a more nuanced take on the idea of emotions and not obviously the whole the whole premise of this movie is that one of the the main thing when we move from childhood to adolescence is that we can now frame our memories and realize that emotions aren't separate like a moment doesn't have to be just happy there can be sadness and stuff mixed into it basically it's a it's a great model for emotional intelligence you know and based off the the simplest simplistic version of this emotion and reason it kind of takes that to another level and i'm going to put a clip of or i'm going to put the whole emotion and reason um, link in the show notes. I encourage you to watch it, but just be aware that it is very like 1943 stereotypical gender roles. Like <laughs> when they show the, the, the inside the woman's head, like all she wants to do is like eat and then reason saying, oh, no. no, you'll get fat and you won't fit in. <laughs> like it's really, Oh my the 50s God. Were very I'm not kind, watching that. Very kind to women. Very, it's very really, kind. it's really awful, but it, it gives you an idea of where, where this movie is coming from, or at least part of it. And then a lot of the, the idea of emotions as, and I'll get this technical stuff out of the way now, because there's so much I want to talk about, but, uh, it's based off the, the, um, psychological work of this guy named Paul Ekman, who argues that we have basic seven emotions. So for the film, they cut out the other two emotions that he talks about, which are, uh, surprise and contempt. But Ekman is actually the guy who came up with the idea of micro expressions. So his um, his work is also the influence for a show that was on TV a while ago called Lie to Me that Alan you introduced oh, cool. me to. I loved that. Yeah, show. that's a great show. Mm-hmm. I didn't know they were the same person. Yeah, that's same awesome. same guy whose work influenced this. So this is like a really like really interesting take on emotions. Obviously, one of the disagreements that I have of this guy's work and of the mm-hmm. film itself is that for Paul Ekman, the, the psychologist, his idea is that emotions control emotions control how we move as opposed to how our circumstances emotions are an expression of our circumstances and not a cause of them that makes sense well we should talk more about that later um, yes definitely because i think i have a couple of things in that lane that i want to talk about and i'm also very sorry about my voice today i'm i'm sick and so if uh you hear me talking like a little lost puppy it's because <laughs> <laughs> i have a a cold I just want to say also on, along those lines too, it, it really resonates with a lot of the systems theory stuff that we've talked a little bit about and grief theory. Uh, I've done quite a bit of reading about um, in my studies, um, just the idea how of how interconnected we are internally and how interconnected we are externally and that there's no way to bifurcate, you know, the thinking mind from the emotional self, especially in kids, because I think that kids are not generally taken seriously and their, their experiences are not taken seriously. But in fact, it's the exact opposite. Those experiences are so formative that they can have lasting impact. So I loved that this movie really took seriously even something as some as normal or ordinary as a, as a move and how that can mm-hmm. throw someone into a tailspin, especially kids, you know, cause their normalcy is, is taken away. So I really appreciated that. That element of not respecting or <clears throat> considering 
a child's experience happens for me when they're sitting at the dinner table and they're arguing and uh, the kids kind of acting out and the father just <laughs> the joke is they put like the new clear codes in and he puts down the foot and tells her to go to her room. And instead of entering her experience and seeing things from her perspective and being interested, he's just trying to fix things. What's great about that particular scene is if you notice when it goes, because it, obviously the whole movie centered around the little girl Riley's head and her leader is Joy like the center emotion that's kind of guiding the rest of the crew. And then when it goes into the mom's head, it's sadness that's the leader of the crew. And then in the dad's head, it's anger that's leading the, the crew. So like you have this just this subtle indication of like how they're all on a different page based on the leader in their mind, which I thought was great. And it can be interpreted as like a stereotypical gender role thing, but I think it more speaks to the circumstances within it, right? Because the move had an effect on everyone in there. Not only the daughter who's going through trying to deal with her sadness, but the father who like every time he's off screen, he's yelling on the phone to his job because he's frustrated and everything's going on. And then the mom, which is the scene right after this, is telling the daughter, you know, just put on a happy face. You can tell, like, she's also very sad about the move. And then she reveals that in the end, too, to kind of give her the daughter, her daughter the freedom to feel that sadness from a, per, you know, parental unit. Throwback to a couple episodes ago. <laughs> um, so so I, that scene, to me, was so pivotal, too, because of who they chose to be the leader in each person's head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and having your emotions validated, I think at any age, but especially in childhood, not being given permission or even language for your emotions Mm -hmm. um not having your emotions validated is so powerfully hurtful and having your emotions validated is so powerfully positive that um teaching you know i'd love to talk for for a while about teaching kids like how to deal with their emotions and how we should see them because i I think especially alan you brought something like this up um especially people in faith communities tend to have a strange Mm -hmm. relationship with emotions um and whether that's from theology or whether that's from um like post-enlightenment sort of understanding of of reason being like all triumphant over emotional self and, and now science is debunking that strongly psychology is debunking that strongly um i i think what it centers on is what jeff was talking about uh, and that's the worth of this movie is that it teaches people to think about emotional intelligence and emotional intelligence being the ability the ability to recognize your own emotions to name them the ability to recognize emotions in other people and then to harness our emotions to make decisions and also to manage them so that they don't, you know, get out of control or uh, erupt and cause unhealthy behaviors. So we, we talk a lot about like being intelligent people and having our kids trained up to become intelligent themselves. But for some reason, I never really grew up or heard in the communities I was a part of that emotional intelligence was just as or more important than, you know, the IQ test or SAT or whatever I took. So I think as there, there's a hierarchy that definitely you're, you're supposed to feel joy and you're allowed to feel joy all the time. But like what this movie did for me was, was really kind of bring to light how much I had like denigrated certain emotions such as disgust and anger and not listen to those emotions, even though they're like necessary and needed for our survival in the world. Right. Like they're all, they're all needed. That whole pack of emotions, they're all needed. They're all, and they're all like kind of strangely a family in and of themselves Mm -hmm. and they protect you. They're good. You know, those emotions are good to some extent and it's when we ignore them is when they kind of get out of hand. Like in the clip disgust, it says disgust keeps us away from poison. Right. And sometimes we think of disgust as being bad, but it serves a good purpose. 
It does. And I think that that's kind of that central metaphor of the whole thing. Because, you know, in the beginning in her brain, there's one control panel that Joy is in charge of. And then at the end, it's a large control panel that everyone has access to as far as the memory. And then the use of color. Beautiful in this film. I think this this movie is masterful yeah. in so many ways. So you have, you know, sadness is the character is blue. Joy is the character yellow and it glo- she glows all the time. And then anger is red, obviously, you know, each <laughs> color appropriate with that. Uh, disgust, you know, we say we're kind of like you, you're turning green if you feel sick or whatever. And then fear is purple. So like you're turning purple like you've gone pale because you're scared or whatever. So the, the and then each of the the little balls that represent memories. And I love how they start solid colors. And then in the end, you see different colors weaved within each of those memories so that you can have this tension of emotions. And also how we reframe memories as we move older. Like as we get older, we know that, you know, events change and our perception of them change in our in our own brain. I just thought like visually it was brilliant filmmaking and one yeah. more thing with that. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's fine. Just like no, the food it's, it's episode. Totally right. I agree. Super stoked about. So the whole movie takes place between, you know, inside the girl's head and then outside the girl's head. And I noticed this this morning when I was watching it because I had a little bit more, you know, I, I already watched it. So I could just, like, one of the things that has changed the way that I watch film is this YouTube channel called Every Frame of Painting. And it's a cinematographer. It shows you like why directors choose the way the camera is framed and stuff. And I've never really thought to apply that idea of camera framing to an animated thing because you i don't know for my brain you think it's just they're just trying to get the animation and they're not worried about the way the camera's moving but in this film every time there's a scene in the external world with riley you can tell that it's it's framed in such a way that that like it's shot on a handheld so it's a little shaky like if you watch the corners of the frame you can see it's moving just a little bit all the time but the internal world Every shot is smooth, like it was on a dolly, or it's moved, so it kind of expresses this difference between that. And then the only time the camera work matches up is at the very end of the conclusion when the girl's finally able to express her emotions, and then the camera pans out from the family hugging in the middle, and then cuts immediately to the same camera work panning out from joy and sadness. And it's this really cool, like, yeah, it's this really cool, like, moment where the camera work meets for that. And I feel like that's real life, you know? Like, in our head, we have this kind of perfect view of how things should be, but then life is always a little shaky. But we have those moments where we feel like all of that converges and, and our real world matches our perceived world. And I just loved the way that they subtly illustrated that through the way that they angled the camera. That's really cool. Um, I'm so glad you did your homework on this, Jeff. <laughs> like, I'm learning so much already. The ability to feel complex emotions. You said it's, you know, the mixture of things, the colors change, they they mix toward the end. And that's the ability to recognize that we feel different things at the same time. I think for me, I was launched into much more emotionally mature space when I heard Speed Levitch say, uh, being a paradox is our human birthright. It's okay to feel one thing and another thing at the same time or one thing one day and one thing the next next. I feel as if society or our families or maybe faith communities tell us all the time, you have to feel a certain way. You have to be consistent. You, you know, you can't have the, you need to control these things according to what we want. And so for me, being conflicted is weak. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it's weird. It's weird to finally embrace that um, I'm a person with paradoxical emotions sometimes, but that's okay because that's 
the nature of things. And we don't have to be just this one bubble of joy or this one bubble of sadness in different situations. We can feel different things and that's okay. And yeah. And that's part of being mature is having yes. that complexity of experience and, mm-hmm. and that your perception matters greatly. But it's so much that. more mature than that is when you take that concept to other people and you allow the people in your lives to have complex emotions instead of reacting in one way or feeling one thing all the time and expecting them to have certain emotions. So getting to know people and their emotions and their complexity is a part of emotional intelligence. I would say even more so of like letting them have those emotions. Cause I would say we all have those emotions, but letting them express those emotions, Yeah, you know, like a place where you can express those things. Cause we all have those emotions, but it's what we do with them. Do we allow ourselves to experience them or do we push them down? Cause I mean the whole, the whole metaphor with joy as the main character, she's always trying to suppress all the other emotions. Like it's only happiness. It's only this. And you get the impression throughout the whole film that joy is selfish. And I wonder if that's, the filmmaker saying that any any one emotion that dominates your life turns you into a selfish person because you're just trying to create this one state of mind for yourself despite what everyone else around you is doing. Well, so I have a friend who is a social worker and works with like um, troubled like preteen kids and took every single one of her patients or clients to see this movie sometimes multiple times because these kids grew up in such crazy environments, most of them, that they... They weren't allowed to, they were, it was reinforced to them to not only not take stock of their emotions, but to exhibit different emotions than they were actually feeling and all kinds of things like that. So, so giving these kids language to just be able to notice and express what they were feeling and validate it, that was like super powerful. She said she saw a huge, um, a huge like quantum leap forward in some of these kids' abilities to cope with what they were feeling. And especially if you come from um, a really crazy home life, um, those emotions can be so powerful and so overwhelmingly powerful that they can affect behavior like drastically. So um, yeah, no, I agree with what you guys are saying. And I think, I, I, I do think that we live in a wider culture, even if you come from a good home, I think we live in a wider culture that really, really regulates people's emotions or we're taught to regulate our own emotions. But you know, if you tell your friend, like you're feeling sad, what's the first thing people often do? Oh, it'll get better. Oh, it won't be like this forever. They try to comfort you. They, they rush yeah. in to make it better, you know, and fix it. And, uh, I think that really does a lot of damage sometimes. Like for example, I was telling a friend of mine, I'm about to graduate from seminary. I was telling a friend of mine, you know, how overwhelmed I am of having so many options. I could live anywhere. I could do a lot of things. And I got done kind of expressing like what I was trying to say, how strongly I was feeling. Uh, so like all these weird emotions like fear and anger and sadness and all these things. And they just were like, huh, first world problems. Am I right? And I was like, so sad. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I that's mean, the worst. That, that person might've been saying something true. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, you need to keep in perspective how much opportunity you have in this moment. And that's true. And that, that's a good conversation to have. But I felt so invalidated, so invalidated. Like I shouldn't even have emotions about this. You know, I mm-hmm. should just be happy. So I think we, we subtly all the time are constantly trying to correct emotions and instead of just accepting them for what they are and looking at the actions that come from the emotions. Like I think we, we need to do a better job separating those things. Yeah. yeah. Naming, using, uh, being able to, manage those are all separate ways of dealing with emotions and for some people they don't even get to the naming part much less like learning how to manage emotions appropriately um 
I think for, for, for my context, it was most explicit. The, the controlling of other people's emotions and not letting them have it was in a church context to have a minister stand up and say, it doesn't matter what you feel. Literally, there's a there's an article I read from Chari- Charisma Mag in 2013, and this could be any website, any date, because so many people have said this, that your feelings literally don't matter. What matters is that you don't doubt what God is telling you, and that in this specific article, there's things, there's suggestions like starve your doubt, tear down your feelings, like repress yourself so that you can go along with the flow. Something bad happens to you. God's in control. You know, something good's going to happen. Don't feel what you're feeling. Um, Oh, you have your mind is wandering and you have these desires and you don't feel like you you should be where you're at. We'll just submit, you know, push those things down. Don't feel them. Uh, The instruction manual is is what matters. And the problem with that is that uh, feelings are not separate, like Mona was saying, from rationality. In fundamentalistic churches, what you get is people saying, your feelings don't matter. What matters is this. And they they present a world where the instructions are clear, feelings aren't involved, there is no hermeneutic, there is no reader response in your interpretation of the Bible or whatever you're giving. And what people need to do is just conform to that. The problem they don't understand is in the mix of that, as interpreters or ministers or whatever we are, our feelings influence the things that we say. And to deny that that happens is what creates fundamentalism. There was a guy who made that claim, um, Richard Beck. He said, fundamentalism is a lack of self-awareness. What is interesting is that a lack of self-awareness itself undergirds some of our beliefs. So non-emotional intelligence becomes this moral high ground to tell people that like it doesn't matter what you feel about what you read or what you hear kills in people their ability to name their emotions to react appropriately with disgust or moral outrage at things and treats teaches people to just to not develop as human beings and it's unfortunate i feel really strongly about this obviously (laughs) because i've been through it it's reminding me of um i mean i I i think some forms of religion are like if you, you almost introduce a sixth character in the Inside Out movie, and they didn't talk about religion, but I think some forms of religion are like a sixth character who's just a police officer who just tells all the other yeah. emotions what to do and and constrains them de- like strongly at times, right? And I I can understand the fear of emotions if you've been hurt by the display of emotions or if you're afraid of a society that's completely given over to their every whim, religious communities are formed around the fear of chaos. I just want to say, like, I think I I can resonate with a little bit of that, like, in religious communities, oh, if we feel things too strongly, like, we're at risk of our community breaking down or things breaking apart. And I think that leads into fear of, of conflict as well. Like, somehow, it seems antithetical to religion to have strong feelings, but it's also incredibly dangerous, as we're talking about, to not acknowledge your feelings because honestly, if you don't, if you, you have to feel them. That's just, and that's what this movie is getting at. Like emotions don't just go away. You can't choose not to just feel mad. Like that, 
that feeling goes somewhere. And psychologists and doctors will even tell you that feeling can even go into your physical being and cause like chronic pain and ailments. I mean, it's really, really interesting that those emotions will, it's like being haunted. You know, if you don't deal with them, they will deal with you. And that's something I've had to learn personally, like through a very long journey. Jeff, but if you feel like this movie was rewritten according to other people's like perspectives, and if they were honest about it, it would look totally different, right? You talked about like angles and the color choices and all this stuff. I feel like my experience would be completely different if it were filmed from a different, the conservative perspective I grew up with. Probably. But I think that, uh, well, like, like one of the, the, the central like symbols of this movie is this idea that they have these core memories, these memories that are setting up like Alan, what you referred to the islands of like family. And that Island is based off of a, a core memory. That's kind of always there. And you know, obviously the, the trap of the movie is they lose the core memories and they have to go get them because sadness touches them and it starts to turn sad. And, and you realize through the, through every, through every scenario, you have these pictures of these core memories and then eventually you're given the context and the main core memory being this one victory, like everyone's celebrating the girl because she did something for the hockey team. And then you realize later that before that she had actually lost the game for the team. And it's this that every memory we choose what we're going to learn or what, we, what we're going to feel about it. So I think in the sense that what you're talking about, Alan, is that it would be different for all of us. I, I agree in the way that the, the movie would, but at the same time, it's like, what, what context are we using to kind of shape that? So I, I, I don't know. I just love that the, the imagery of that, because I think there's little elements in here that we can all relate to, even though it doesn't necessarily follow our own specific journey overall. So let me ask you guys, do you think there are such things as, as inappropriate emotions? Because you said something about, was it you, Alan, who said something about like sadness, like coloring or tainting all these memories that used to be good? Oh, no, that's the um, premise like, of the movie. Um, I've talked over oh, and over okay. about managing emotions because I, I do think um, the an, an inability to manage our emotions is what leads to, like Jeff is talking about, the uh, Jeff mentioned that one emotion will be the dominant feature instead of having this plethora, this ability to feel many different things. And there, there are many cases of people that I work with that, that are not just stuck, but like dominated by um, things that are, that are difficult to deal with. And so learning to manage my own emotions is important, right? I mean, even in everyday scenarios, like I get angry and if I get angry at the wrong time and do the wrong thing because of my anger, it could jeopardize my job or whatever. So learning to manage emotions is a part of emotional intelligence. But that said, sometimes management looks like it it look it's talked about as if it's management, but what really is, is invalidation. So these are great lines. Yeah, for sure. Well, because we're told not to do this particular thing when we're mad, but we're never given an alternative. Do this instead. It's always don't do this. And it's, you know, it's like that, the proverbial snowball coming down the hill, like you can't stop it. The only thing you can do is redirect it because there's so much momentum behind it. And I think the same thing is true with our emotions. I think emotional management is not saying not to feel, not saying what we're going to feel and what we're not going to feel, but finding the appropriate avenue to release that feeling into. I did have a long conversation with someone in my life who recently had a baby and they were saying um, they really were intent on teaching their kid that some emotions were sinful. But I wonder if that's another way to put what you guys are saying or if that's going back to that fundamentally fundamentalistic view of like policing your emotions like in a bad way. Yeah. Telling someone their emotions are sinful 
is absolutely dead wrong, in my opinion. The worst thing. I think I it's agree. the worst thing that you can do for a person. The way you're feeling is sinful. It's just absolutely wrong. Like your doubts, your anger, like whatever, that stuff's not sinful. That's being a human being. That's a part of our makeup. You might as well say, oh, you're left-handed. That's sinful. Or <laughs> you're tall. That's sinful. It's like it's a part of our makeup, you know, to deny that yeah. I have emotions is to deny I'm, I'm a human. Take away the sinful aspect of it. That's illustrated in this movie, you know, not sinful, but for, for Riley in the movie, your sadness right now is not helpful. We need to get through this time. So don't, you know, put on your happy face because we're all affected by this. So I think that, you know, what you're exactly what you're saying, Alan, I think that that's, we just have these different terminologies for it. Yeah. So what did you, what did you guys think of like other parts of the movie? I thought it was interesting that they didn't, that desire was not an emotion. Like the, the fact that those individual emotional characters had very, um, it, what am I trying to say? Very distinct personalities, but desire itself was not an emotion. And I, what I, I was just going to touch back on the sin thing. I think that, and the communities that I come from, it's like, there's a real fear that if you just follow your emotions, like, well, one day I'm going to wake up and want to cheat on my spouse. What do I do with that emotion? But the thing is, if you really watch this movie closely, you realize that that desire um, and like lust, for example, like uh, things that we would consider very hurtful for relationships those actually are not core emotions. Those are outcomes of core emotions. So I think before we even get to action, like what comes in between is it goes emotion and then desire and then action. So I think a lot of times when people are talking about sin, like for example, a lot of biblical um, injunctions, like do not lust, do not cover your neighbor's wife, do not, you know, don't even curse people in your heart. Um, what, what I think what we need to look at is what's underneath those yeah. things that often in churches, we don't look at what's underneath those things. What We don't look at what's underneath the desire to do something that would harm yourself or others. And oftentimes it's like really deep emotions that have been neglected for so long. For example, loneliness or sadness and people don't know how to process those things. So they kind of like squirt out as like inappropriate longings, right? Yeah. Well, even like within the character, like in order for us to even acknowledge that we can have an emotional intelligence, we have to have some kind of experience to draw on. Like the main character, Joy, it isn't until she herself experiences sadness that she understands how important sadness is to the wholeness of who she is. So even within the emotions, there's this, you know, uh, reflection and looking at the situation and seeing how as she experiences new things, we change things. And I feel like if we suppress those emotions, then we're not only eliminating that, but we're also eliminating our experience. And when we, you know, we've talked about this in all kinds of different iterations, but when we eliminate experience and we narrow our bubble, then we're, we're less whole as a person. Yeah. I like that a lot. I, I, I can't escape like God as the great emotional regulator. Like in that movie, it just my understanding of God sometimes from when I was a kid was that father who just sets the nuclear codes. And if you react a certain way, you're going to get the foot dropped down. You know what I mean? There's not this sense of empathy, yeah. but if you do it, when I go back and personally, because my faith is built upon the Bible first and last, when I go back and I read through the Bible, there is empathy, you know, like my, my, uh, forefather Abraham argued with God and said, it doesn't feel just to have you just make this, you know, take this action. And so he'd argue with God. And I feel like that's been, tamped down in um my understanding of god you know if if i if i have the freedom to feel these things maybe god isn't like that that father but something totally different well, i was just gonna add god as parent is one 
God metaphor among many. Yes. And I think maybe if that's been hurtful to some of us, mm-hmm. we need to find better metaphors that we can understand. Like God has comforter, just comforter and friend, you know, that's not above us looking down. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not setting rules for us, but simply coming alongside us and being with us. Or being the so, parent that kneels down and says, hey, I'm sad too. <laughs> you know what I mean? Empathy that, feels yeah. things. You know, uh, my favorite part of the movie, this has nothing to do with anything, and it's probably just stupid. I usually don't like slapstick humor, but I like the part where there was the boyfriend that was created over and over and over and over and over, and then it created yes. this like really long tower, and Joy climbs to the top, and then like gets back up top because she's on top of all these little images of the perfect boyfriend. It was funny. It's really yeah, kind of it's kind of like scary when you think about it because essentially like the little boyfriend in her head is like I die for you and essentially <laughs> she murders boyfriend clones to resolve the film you know what I mean because they all fall into the the pit of things that are forgotten and <laughs> you know she's like ah whatever they're expendable I can attest to the truth of it no. <laughs> not the murdering part not the murdering I didn't kill anyone <laughs> my well, favorite was Imagination Land. Oh, I yeah. loved, I loved, that. and I loved how the boyfriend was Canadian. You know the old, the old lie we tell. Oh yeah, my my boyfriend or girlfriend lives in in Canada. You know in you'll Canada. never meet them. <laughs> there's there's, there's so strong, many subtle little points of humor. Yeah, there's a strong there metaphor is. there. Once you kill off all of these imaginary things, you can't get the joy that you want in a relationship until you kill off all of these versions that you've created in your head. Anyway, that's what I saw when all of the little boyfriends tumble into the things of forgotten. Because how many times in a relationship have you been like? I wish this person was this way or in your head, you've built them up to be someone that you're not. And that's not like a basis for like joy inside of a relationship. That's just once, once you can get past that to love an actual person, then anyway, that's how I, there's a great line. There's a great line in 500 days of summer. They're interviewing like one of the side characters and he's talking about a relationship that he's had for a really long time. Like he met his girlfriend in elementary school and they've been together for so many years. And he goes, you know, sometimes I wish you know, I think my perfect woman would have this and this different, but actually Robin, the girl I'm with is better because she's real. She's better than my ideal. And I loved that so much. That's cool. Um, yeah. yeah. About the part where they go into the long-term memory. Did you like that part where they have to go through all the long-term memories to get back to the... No, it stressed me out. (laughs) My favorite part of that was how like the workers kept sending up the gum commercial as like a gag. (laughs) Like we're just going to make them remember this over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I love how Uh, it like subtly popped up throughout the movie. (laughs) That was hilarious. I like like the part where they enter the... um, theoretical and abstract thought world yes and this kind of presupposes that unless you take a journey of maturity and knowing your own self and your own mind that you kind of never get there or something um that was interesting to me and i think i've met people who are locked into past experiences or locked into certain ways of thinking that can't get to more abstract thought levels but they're capable of it they just don't like to engage it because it makes them uncomfortable i thought that was fascinating that's part of the maturity process you literally move from concrete thinking to abstract thinking in your yeah when i loved how they visually illustrated that you know (laughs) like now we're two-dimensional and they become these little cardboard and then non-figurative and they turn into these (laughs) random shapes and like i I don't know I feel like because the dialogue was so specific as far as like stages, does do either of you know if that's like an actual like I'm sure it is thing like an academic no, stage? Yeah, thing, it goes I with wonder. childhood development, mm-hmm. psychological childhood development, and it actually de- deals with the development of your actual brain. And I think it's tw- 25 is the age when you develop your frontal cortex that allows you to hold abstract thought and regulate. Um, uh, I'm not a psychologist, so I think you know, we'll have to. Um, yeah, but it, it is it is until you're well into your 20s, until you're um, 
your brain is completely fully formed. So yeah, it like, I think the age of seven is a key f- time when, um, kids can start to deal with more abstract thinking. And that's interestingly, that's also the quote unquote age of accountability in some religious traditions where you can, you're capable of sin. Um, so it's it's kind of interesting to think that some religious traditions kind of intuit these stages of development before psychology mm-hmm. came around. I think in in Indian culture, it's actually really, from what I know in India, they have a really sharp dividing line between 25, 50, and like 75. They have these lines of, you are now in this, this is what society expects of you. Like, it's it's pretty interesting that they've established that religiously from a long, long time ago. Interesting. Yeah. I, my favorite part, my favorite, favorite part, the part that just moves me every time is when sadness and joy come together and they create the bittersweet. Um, and they, they kind of make friends with each other and they recognize the importance of each other. That to me is so powerful. And I think just personally going through times of like really deep grief, like Honestly, like a couple of years ago when I was going through some really hard stuff, I I I told myself like, okay, I'm going to make friends with my sadness. I'm going to learn to accept it and hold it and like almost appreciate it. Um and I think that can go too far into maybe depression where you like actively embrace and seek out mm-hmm. sadness and that, you know, you probably need some clinical help if that's the case, but if if sadness becomes cathartic, but um the idea of making friends with your sadness and allowing those things to coexist was just it was so validating for me. Like I was like, Oh, finally here's someone saying what I've like felt for a while. There's actually a practice you can do. Uh, the book I was reading last month was hardwiring happiness. And in it, this psychologist gives you steps to, um, reforming and restructuring your brain. Cause neuroscience is really interested in like neuroplasticity and how your brain changes with your experiences. And he recommends this like process of having a positive experience. It smells out. Heal, have a positive experience enrich in it in some way like uh heighten it and then absorb it actually stick with it and stay with it um his whole point is that we have these good experiences in our lives and then they're gone and it's way too quick and how often do we stop and then just like really allow ourselves to experience it for maybe 15 seconds more than we would have and then he says if you get really good at that the last step in his little heal program is linking positive and negative material Super interesting. What he recommends, and it's really, it it can be dangerous if you don't do it well and you're not um, careful with it. But if you have this really good experience, he recommends bring up something that's negative. Bring up this emotion or this thought or this experience that is giving you trouble and link it with this good experience. It may have nothing to do with each other, but bring it up while you're having this really good experience and it can heal these things that people deal with. And that's what he does with his uh, clientele a lot. So that's a, that's a literal, uh, clinical depiction of what sadness and happiness are doing, right? They're like putting their hands on the memory and they're both influencing it and creating something different. Yeah. Like, and, and the process of remembering a memory, that's so fascinating. Remembering a memory in a certain way. Like, so there's what happens in the past, right? Is something that occurs that after it's done, we no longer have access to it because we're not in that moment. So all we have is our perception of it. And the perception of it is totally like you're saying, colored by different emotions. And those things can shift over time. Um, and recently, it's funny. I So I'm going to graduate in like a month from seminary. And my aunt, who's a wonderful person, was like, hey, can I come to your graduation? And I was like, honestly, I hate these things. Like, I'm probably not going to go. 
And she was like really sad that I didn't want to go to my graduation. I really, honestly, I think they're the worst. I think graduation ceremonies are the worst. Agreed. However, however, I think like as I'm getting older, I'm recognizing there's like a really weird wisdom in old in rituals of celebrating and noting. Like you're saying, Alan, like taking the time to look back, you know, even as a community and say, this is what we did. This is where we came. And you know what? It was pretty dang good. Let's celebrate it. Let's be present with it. And let's from here on remember it as a thing that shaped us and transformed us. Even sad things, I think it's really important to commemorate and to, you know, notice how you're seeing that memory and drawing out the best things from it, you know? Um, And I think it's interesting, you know, I think like Christian theology, often it's like, well, God, you know, works everything out for the good of, you know, if so people translate that into these bad things happen to you so that something else good can happen. And I think that's super, super dangerous because it makes God out to be kind of a tyrant, right? They can just bring about suffering, you know, for the greater good. And, and, you know, but there's so much suffering in the world. You can't reconcile with that. And I think it's offensive to say that about God, honestly. But I do think there is something crucial in that saying, God works everything out for the good that you can look back at even horrible things that have happened and recognize the horrific emotions, but also say in those moments, but good still came, even though that was bad, good still came out of it. And therefore, you know, it's easier to like digest or something. Yeah. To handle Um, the handle, the good and the bad at the same time without invalidating one of them. Sometimes in our religious practice is to invalidate all the bad things to avoid Really what it is, it should just be avoidance. I feel like that's half of what ministry expects us to do is avoid these things. But if you can hold both at the same time, it's much more emotionally healthy. Any uh, <laughs> any favorite gags that they – because they had these little gags throughout the movie that I thought were, were brilliant. I loved that Sadness got the participation award. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why it just made me laugh so hard with like and I don't think I caught it like the first time I watched it but that little thing and then also as uh and I don't mean to step into your territory Mona but I loved that the main character is a girl and that she's not a figure skater but a hockey player yes and I loved that they took the wrecking ball to princess dream world yes <laughs> I love both those moments I was gonna say something about that and there is like we talked about in the episode with Kayla last week um, there is a growing understanding of like celebrating women's strength. And I love that they're teaching girls about that. That's so good. I was actually afraid of the part when they were going through the, um, the chamber that was reorganizing them abstract thought that actually scared me because it moves, uh, moves me away. It reminds me in my life when I've stepped away from islands that I've created that are in my brain when they, when they're destroyed and then I go through some abstract process of rebuilding something else, it can be very fearful for me personally. So that's, it's weird to feel the different emotions that come up while I'm watching this and then thinking about my own childhood. And, um, so yeah, that that part was scary for me. (laughs) I thought of my sister when they went through the subconscious, (laughs) they got into the, the clown that everyone's scared of. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. She, uh, I did not like that part. For those of you that don't know, I'm married to a sister and, uh, she watched some clown movie when she was a kid and hated it. Invaders from Outer yes. Space, I think that's what it was called. Can't. Killer Clowns from Killer Outer Space. Killer Clowns from Outer Space. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know who showed her that movie. Yeah, no, that Jeff, would be awful geez. if someone to do. <laughs> Killing people with cotton candy? That's not appropriate. Jeez. They didn't kill them in cotton candy. They <laughs> oh. trapped them in cotton candy before they killed them. Okay, got it. Got it. 
I, I love this movie because it. Uh, I saw my niece and nephew who are in second and first grade when it came out. They came home. They had balloons, like six or seven balloons, where they had drawn faces with all the different emotions, happy, sad, this, that. And they played games where they would like talk about something and then show what emotion they would you know, feel. And just the fact that they're learning how to name this stuff from a young age because of something Pixar put out gives me some sort of hope for the entertainment industry. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. That's kind of like um, entertainment as activism yes. at the same time. I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did anyone think it was interesting that that they framed, uh, even though they did this like scary romp through subconsciousness, but what was what was framed from the film wise? What's more scary is the pit of being forgotten. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. Like how right. that was a really interesting because most people, and I think it goes to the overall theme of the movie, embracing emotions. Is usually we try to suppress our subconscious. We don't want that stuff to come out. But their whole goal was to get out of there. But the real scary thing was being forgotten. And and can we talk Jeez. about how sad it was when Bing Bong actually, disappeared? <laughs> yeah. Actually, that that to me was um. I, I had an issue with that because forgottenness is never fixed. You know, like how many times have you walked through and you smelled something and oh my God, there's grandma's house. And I haven't thought about that gra- house grandma lived in for 20 years, but there it is, you know? So I think it, it's kind of a misnomer that you can completely erase memories. Maybe. Actually. So I had I was, kind of an I was issue gonna with that. say, you said earlier, Mona, that in the movie, if you had watched it at a previous moment in your life, it would have felt different or it would have seemed different. And then now that you're at this place, it feels this way. What if we all, I think it was you said that baby Jeff, what if we watched this from the perspective of, and these are people I deal with on a daily basis, people who are scared of going, of, of um, developing Alzheimer's or, um, you know, Parkinson's or maybe some sort of uh, dementia. And it's like, to have other people around them even suggest that they're losing their memory is this like scary thing or themselves feeling it. Can you imagine watching that scene from that vantage point? What that would oh, look like? Like it's something that happens to that you, would be, not something yeah, you're doing wrong. Exactly. Can True. You yeah. I took that more point. as conceptual anyway, not the fact that you could forget, but the fact that forgetting is scary. Like yeah. that's the thing. It is. That's, that's more terrifying than suppressing or I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting juxtaposition. I don't know if they did it on purpose or, you know, or what. The juxtaposition is great. You're right. Subconscious versus just, you know, you're right. That pit was the the darkest, not the darkest. That's probably, but yeah, it was the scariest moment in the movie was being in that. Yeah. yeah. Well, from the point like where Bing Bong disappears in that pit to the end of the movie is where I cried. Like, and I don't, all the time. I've watched, again, oh, I watched it Bing three Bong. times. <laughs> I know. Bing Bong was thing. sacrificed himself. Hey, I read some reviews and they some people did not like this movie. Did you know that? Some people really did really? not like it. One person said I don't want to talk about the haters. One person the said there was too much talking needed to get the scene. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious about a movie about emotions. Like And it's still a kids <laughs> movie. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, people are I don't know. I well, it's interesting though the the role of memory in the movie in particular, because you have the pit of forgottenness, but then you also have other memories like hockey land like hockey is built up of like muscle memory and motor memory and an intellectual memory mm, of how the game works and then that becomes a whole island of being yeah. that a person can travel to so um it's interesting that like memory has actually multi many faces in the film and sometimes memory can create a whole world right yep inside a person i watched a horrible <clears throat> i'm not even recommending this but i guess i'm saying it out loud i watched a parody of in inside out two or something 
where she starts to go into further, like later adolescence. And so these different uh, lands get built according to the messages that the, that she's watching on TV and the media and entertainment Ooh. and stuff. And then uh, her disgust starts to take over. Like she takes a selfie of herself and disgust, like, you know, presses a bunch of buttons and then she like puckers up her lips and then does something like that and then takes another selfie and then it's better. And like, it's just a really interesting kind of riff on some of the, the culture but it's a little crass and probably uh hammerhead i want to watch but... it <laughs> i feel like they should they should make a rated r sequel and go through puberty because <laughs> you know that yeah, the little that, that's what like... it is yeah the end of it <laughs> yeah the end of that great. little youtube clip is puberty is a b you know and that's uh pretty funny <laughs> that's fascinating mm-hmm. i would no i think that's there's something very real there i mean a lot of us like puberty is so formative for so many people mm-hmm. and so shameful for so many people but the things that make up yeah. our islands are are, are fascinating yeah. i mean like a lot of it's but, subconscious and we're like all the, constructions we're all constructions yes. every single one of us we're yeah. constructed by our experiences and our reactions and our families and our systems and our culture and uh, no, I think that to me, focusing on that is like very scary for some people to even think about like, oh my gosh, I'm just this big, like amorphous amalgamation of all these things, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm so conditioned by all these things. But for me, it gives a lot of hope because like, for those of us who want out of selfie culture, and we recognize that it is a construction, we can, we can opt out. It's not a given. It's not a fixed entity. It's not a fixed part of ourselves. Or like it's hope for overcoming the disgust at yourself or the negative patterns that have locked you into a certain thing. All right. Well, I think, uh, it, before we close any, any last comments about the film or what you took away from it before we move on? I think fear should always be a side character. That's what I learned in the film. This film would not exist if fear like stood in front of the camera every time it went inside of her head, because when people, when I am too afraid to look inward, to feel the feelings I'm feeling, it clouds everything else out and I can't name my emotion, know my emotion. So I guess for me, it was cool seeing fear as the side character that sometimes helps, but a lot of times gets in the way. Actually, originally, this is a side note. Now that you mentioned that originally the original script had fear and joy go through the thing and not sadness and joy, which is interesting. That's very interesting. That is interesting that they changed that. Huh. I wish they had touched on um, like the hormonal changes that can happen in your body because of your emotions. Like an example is um, when you're stressed, your cortisol levels shoot through the roof and cortisol blocks your ability to learn. Huh. Um, and ability to process things around you. Yeah. And it also le- leads like some strong psychological, physiological changes. Whereas um, learning how to do self-soothing with can within minutes reduce your cortisol level. Um, there's a really great TED talk about um, this woman who who is a psychologist. I think she's a psychologist who learned to um, change uh, emotional patterns and fear responses based on body language and posture. So I'll, I'll give the um, link for that in the show notes. But I wish they would have talked more about like what actually happens. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a movie, so they a can't kids movie. touch on all of it. <laughs> it's trying to yeah. be right. overly simple. But what actually yeah. happens in your body and especially when, um, emotions are heightened and you don't deal with them, like what actually happens to you physiologically. So if there was another like system inside of the, not just memories that are like these balls and the emotions are touching them, but if there was another system that was undergirding all that, that was the physical the body. Yeah. The physical yeah, body. They could do a spin-off, yeah. a spin-off movie of the each hormone as a character. <laughs> no. <laughs> and how all that works. It'll it'll be like a Miss Frizzle episode uh, or Magic School Bus. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, Magic School Bus, man. That's awesome. Yeah. I miss that. How about you, Jeff? I I don't know. I just love this movie. And on every 
single level. I'll probably watch it another million times before it taught I Jeff die. how to cry, right? Aww. <laughs> well, the first time I watched it, we're it's watching it <laughs> with with the girls in the same room, and like they're having these moments, and I'm looking over, like, "Oh my gosh, they're going to be at this place." I'm I'm gonna stop. Yep. I'm like, <laughs> I can't keep going. Aww. I'm going to cry now. Uh, anyway, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Is it joy uh, or sadness, so it, Jeff? You feel? It's just great. <laughs> it was great, and I, I thought the casting was perfect. Like I think the the way that Amy Poehler does Joy, mm-hmm. like it's reminiscent of her, you know, Leslie Nope character because she's always got. The, she was just the perfect cast for that, and all the yeah. other ones. Same I thought, thing. Louis Black is anger, brilliant uh, sadness. Like you could have got any big name actor, but they got you know Phyllis from The Office, who like perfect. she just got this. Perfect who is tone. so beyond perfect? <laughs> yeah, oh, it was so great. I, I just I feel like they took just as much time picking who was going to be each emotion, and uh, it was I just. It was great. Let us know what you think. If you have anything to add to the conversation about the movie or some of the themes that we expressed, you can do that at irenacast.com slash 58. That's irenacast.com slash 58. And since this is kind of a new thing, let us know what you think about this uh, you know, movie review type conversation that we've had. Or if you have any suggestions, questions, comments, or concerns for future shows, you can do that at irenacast.com slash feedback. On the other side of the music, we will be doing a little irenacasting. See what I did there? <laughs> um, ah, that's the good. Movie, that's good. Yeah, exactly. There you go. We will be casting the Irenicast movie, who we think should play each of us in not an upcoming feature, but an imaginary feature. And Imagination Land is where it'll exist. <laughs> So I suppose it's conceivable that in some multiverse version of ourselves that our podcast is so popular <laughs> that they decide one day to make a film on Irenicast. Hmm. And if that day ever They're comes, at least in my head. It, if, I'm going to say when. I'm going to just go out on a limb here. And it's say a when. people love listening to conversations about faith and culture so much that it becomes mainstream media, right? Yes. Yeah. So then the question becomes, who who plays us in the film version of this mm. podcast? Which is compl- which compl- which is complicated because we're related, brother-in-law, cousin, friend, right? Yeah. Mm. So it can't be any any people who've had a prior relationship because that would just be awkward, right? Yeah. No, not necessarily. They could redcon it. Like they could take some creative license. We don't have to be related in the movie, right? They can uh, play with that's, what, that's where the magic comes from. <laughs> okay, can I give you mine? <laughs> I have a very well thought out. Yeah, okay, yeah. The, this is my yeah. thing. Okay. You ready? <laughs> uh, this is set like 30 or 40 years into the future. 40 years. Jeff, it's Robert De Niro. Mona is Meryl Streep. And I'm Michael Caine, which is the guy from like. Yes! That's <laughs> so good. I want to be Meryl He's from, uh, oh, shoot. Michael Caine is from like. Uh, oh, he's in all, all kinds of Miss Congeniality. Yeah. Oh, he's but- Batman's butler, right? At one point. Yeah. No. Alfred. That's, is that him? It's that's Alfred. So good. Yeah, but he's got yeah, a bunch, he's got wait, a bunch so of silly stuff. Why did you set us in the future? Though. So, so basically, just Robert De Niro. You know that. And for some reason, I thought of. Meryl but why? Sleep when I thought of. I'm curious. Personality. Because we've been doing a cast for forty personality years. Personality is why I chose Robert. I think he could. I think he could represent you. And you know, if you tried really hard. Um, but anyway, all three of us are on the porch. Okay. And the world, it's like a dystopian future. Um, 
not just in the sense that, you know, war and diseases killed a lot of people, though that has happened because in every single thing I think of, that's what happens. We're on the porch talking about spirituality and religion, although, you know, nobody goes to uh, faith communities anymore. It's largely post everything that we've ever known. There is nothing called fundamentalism. It blew up and destroyed itself. And we're talking to each other about things that don't exist anymore and that nobody cares about and drinking on the porch for the whole wow movie. that's it's kind of weirdly bleak alan <laughs> yeah but but we oh find so goodness. much joy in it you know like it's cool <laughs> on the porch sounds good that's me. Armona, what about you all right well okay so i was thinking about how jeff is often like the cool like reserve kind of character yes. who like is kind of a parent parental figure but like not quite because he's too snarky to be when but also has like a heart of gold. So <laughs> I was thinking you would be played by Joel McHale, the guy from Community. Of course. I'm, and the soup. Of course. I'm flattered. Yes. I, that guy's name is actually Jeff. The voice. Community. His name is Jeff, believe it or not. Oh, really? Okay. So maybe that's why like, it was <laughs> no, in there. It was in I, I got to tell you, Vicky and I watched that show. It reminds us of him so much. It's ridiculous. Yeah, yes. right? Okay. So casting for the win. Number two. Uh, Alan, I would cast you as Seth Rogen. Really? You know, people used to tell me that I looked like him yeah. like a while ago. You talk like him, weird, and I weird. feel like it's kind of like a lovable, like kind of <laughs> nerdy. Like I like that. I'll go with that. <laughs> also you, if you looked gold. on my Facebook from eight years ago, Vicky would have Vicky posted a picture of Seth Rogen and said, "People keep saying this." So, you oh, really? It. That's funny. <laughs> well, you're you're like the guy we like to like tease Absolutely. a lot, but like you take it well, Absolutely. and uh, you know we still totally love you at the end. Of but the, day. the question, and the then, question uh, is, are you self aware? We want to hear what your pick for yourself is going to be for myself. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. Um, I'm not, I have a high, a high level of self-confidence. First of all, I'm just going to warn you. So I'm going to pick Jayla for myself, Jennifer Lawrence, because she's snarky and quirky, but still sounds intelligent. I so, almost picked her for you in my version. Really? I didn't, yes! but that was my, that was my honorable mention in who I was thinking of. <laughs> She just doesn't give a crap, you know, and I think people appreciate that about her. At least that's her public persona. I do not know her personally, but Jayla, if you're listening to our podcast, I would love to meet you, take you out for coffee, you know, like we could be buds. I could absolutely see that. I absolutely could. We'll make fun of everyone else, but like in a nice way together. And, uh, you know, it'll be great. I could see you in Hunger Games, like killing the authorities personally, but that's just me. Thanks. Thanks. So, so what what would they do? Those three people. So, what's the plot? Well, yeah, the plot is like these are just like three ho hum people, you know, who uh, meet each other and you know they overcome personal struggles to be able to get to a place where they're able to talk about things intelligently, and then you know they start off this fledgling podcast, but pretty soon you know they write a book and then they're on the Oprah show or whatever the equivalent is in a few years, but like the fame like threatens to tear them apart, (laughs) you know? So they have to keep true to themselves. Uh, They have to stay true to themselves is the, is the big conflict of the story, but they managed to do it. And it's a, it's kind of like a, kind of like a chick flick sort of a thing. Um, with moments of depth and and poignancy (laughs) is what the critics will say. Is what the critics will say. (laughs) Yeah. Very good. I like that. Jeff. All right. Okay, Jeff. So, uh, wow. Okay. So this is how this is going to work. I did not, I didn't pick, I thought at first I was like, well, who looks like who? And I was like, nah, I got to get that out of my mind. So I went with like, who represents what I feel represents and embodies the two of you. Uh, so for Alan, I picked Brandon Roth. 
Brandon Roth played Superman in Superman Returns, which was an awful movie, but <laughs> right now he's playing in a, a comic book TV show called Legends of Tomorrow, and he plays uh, uh, Dr. Palmer, who is the Atom, basically the DC equivalent of Ant-Man. This and person the is reason so I picked obscure. Him, I don't, I've never seen him <laughs> I know. Brandon okay. Roth? If you saw him, you'd recognize him. Brandon Roth. You thought know, about this I, really hard. I did think about this really hard because for Alan, he's got all this information, super smart, but has this like endearing innocence about him at the same time. And the way that Brandon Roth plays this character in Legends of Tomorrow, he does exactly that. Like there's you just you love everything about him. And you also know that he's super smart and has all this stuff that he can bring to the table (laughs) as far as like his intelligence. So that's Uh, who I'm casting for. I hear lovable. That's what I hear. And it makes me feel good on the inside. So. So the, then Mona, like just this strong person who has this propensity to want to make sure that the right thing is done, like justice driven. And I don't know how many of either of you have seen uh, Daredevil on Netflix. It's amazing. No. Uh, the lady who plays uh, Karen Page, I think the actress's name is, is Deborah Ann Wool, but that's who I think of, like just this like strong, like capable, I'm not going to worry about what everyone else is. And she's probably one of like the strongest, strongest written female characters in that show as far as like she has this really independent agency and she's not, her, her storyline isn't dictated by the superhero, even though it's a superhero movie. So I, I love that aspect. So I think that embodies where Mona would be for this. Thanks. So for me, uh, I, I can't do this unbiasedly. So I figured I'm just going to go... <laughs> I'm just going to go completely selfish, and I'm going to be cast as The Rock, Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> so I'm just saying, that's, that's right there. Very I'm The nice. Rock. That's who's going to play me. Are uh, you using all those muscles for something, or are you just kind of like eye candy? In this, a little this bit story? of both. A little bit of both. Because my both? scenario, I'm going with a comedic scenario here. So okay. movie, movie opens with, the th- in, in this movie universe, we all record in the same room, the same studio. Movie opens to us wrapping up our 500th episode. And not only are we wrapping up this special 500 episode, but it is an amazing episode. We're super stoked about it. So we're sitting around this table in the studio and we've wrapped up and we have our beers and we kind of like, that was amazing. Can't wait to put this out. And we cheers. And then it cuts to this crazy party that we're having because we're celebrating this amazing milestone. And then, so it's this big party montage. And then it opens with us in the morning, passed out in the living room. We wake up. We realize someone has taken our episode and the SD card that it is on. So then it moves into this, like, dude, where's my car scenario where we all have to find out who took our episode so we can post Flash it the next the day on over. time. <laughs> exactly. And then, you know, craziness ensues from there. That's pretty good. <laughs> I think that will do it for us this week. If you enjoy what you hear and you want to support the show, you can rate, review, and subscribe on your preferred listening platform. If you've already done that, go to irenacast.com slash support for even more ways to show some love to the show. So for this week, I'm Jeff. I'm Mona. And I am Alan. Thanks for joining the conversation. I'm going to press stop.